0: Short Rounds. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and today I'm doing something just a little bit different. So last week, we finished out the story of the Imjin War, the samurai invasions of Korea from 1592 to 1598. Imjin War story is over. But I decided to take this opportunity to use the Imjin War as a case study to address something I've wanted to talk about for a while in greater detail. And that is logistics supply the art of maintaining and supplying an army guys i can already see your eyes glazing over no 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 stick with me i promise you will understand i have wanted to do something about military logistics for a while now because it keeps coming up in other episodes it also plays into what i call the video gamization of history where people learn history from video games in the 21st century which is fine But games don't and can't model everything. I have yet to see any game that accurately models military logistics or even comes close. Well, guys, today is the day. This short round is titled Logistics of the MGen War because I have two things I want to accomplish in the next 30-ish minutes. This might run over just a little bit. That's the risk we're taking. Number one. I made an assertion several times throughout the m War series that a lack of reinforcements and supplies, the constraints of logistics, caused the Japanese to lose the m War. And I also said that Yi Sun-shin's navy was critical in that area. Well, today I'm explaining exactly what I meant when I said those things. I'm backing up that assertion with data. Number two. I want to use the MGen War as a case study to demonstrate certain basic facts about military logistics, especially pre-modern military logistics. Supply, transportation, food, marching, you name it. So you can take everything I'm saying today and extrapolate it to any other human conflict. The rules sometimes change, but not as much as they might seem. We're talking about the Imjin War, but not just the Imjin War. Everything I say today applies to every single conflict in human history. I'm taking one example to show you why military logistics is one of the most important, least understood aspects of warfare. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean, the content is not. All my sources are on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, still under the Big MGen War source post. So if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be Unknown Soldiers. So to get this short round started, I'm going to rewind like four episodes all the way back to the beginning of the Imjin War. If you don't remember everything from episode 20, Samurai Blitzkrieg, it's okay. I'll tell you what's up. So the situation, August 1592, the Samurai Blitzkrieg has invaded Korea and reached its limits. The Christian daimyo, Kanishi Yukonaga has occupied Pyongyang, marching from Busan to Pyongyang with his first division. Banana Hat Kato Kiyomasa is moving into Hamgyong province with his second division. Korean resistance has been blown to ribbons, except for Yi Sun-shin and the Korean Navy still blocking the Japanese fleet's advance along the southern coast of Korea. So Hideyoshi's is still back in Japan planning his future invasion of China. All our pieces are on the board. Cool. That's the situation. August 1592. Now let's talk Logistics. Military logistics is the art of supply, the art of moving, supplying, supporting, and maintaining large bodies of troops. Every army in history does some level of logistics, and it has certain hard constraints, certain rules that you cannot violate, what I will call the Iron Hand of Logistics. So put yourself in Toyotomi Hideyoshi's shoes. You're looking at a map of Korea, your forward unit, Kanishi Yukinaga's 1st Division, 20,000 men are in Pyongyang. You know that Kanishi's men are going to need supplies, food, blankets, tents, ammunition, armor, weapons, medical supplies, and reinforcements. And not only that, if you want to accomplish your dream of invading China, there's going to need to be a lot bigger of an army up in Pyongyang. Kanishi ain't invading China on his lonesome with 20,000 men. One does not simply walk past the Great Wall. So we have a logistical problem, a math problem, a word problem, if you will. Don't you love word problems? Didn't you love word problems in school? The problem is, how do we supply Kanishi Yukonaga's army with everything he needs? How do all of our supplies being offloaded from Japan in Busan make their way up the road to his army? So this is our case study. You, you, let's call you a Captain Suzuki, you're you're a random Japanese officer. You need to get X amount of supplies from Busan to Pyongyang. You need to supply 20,000 men. Go. So first off, we need to know how much Kanishi's army requires. We need to transport amount of supplies X over distance A. But what is X? What is the amount of supplies? Well, let's start with the very basic requirement. Food. Everyone's got to eat. Your soldiers don't eat, they're going to be ex-soldiers pretty soon. So Kanishi's 1st Division had a daily food requirement. What was it? So according to a military manual from the 1600s, a Japanese military manual, an ashigaru's daily ration was 2.5 pounds of rice and miso per day at minimum. 2.5 pounds of uncooked rice comes out to about 3,200 calories, and the miso provided much of the ashigaru's nutrients. This was a bare minimum. And this is actually pretty close to modern rations. The U.S. Army has a soldier's daily caloric needs during active operations pegged at around 3,600 calories. And you'll see 3,600 calories as a constant throughout military history. You look at any ration from any army, they usually come out to around 3,600 calories, even in the ancient era. Alexander the Great's grain rations, Civil War rations, GI rations in World War II. Even modern MREs ballpark around 1,200 calories per, and this adds up to about 3,600 calories per day. And these rations typically weigh, on an average, about three pounds. The Japanese ration in the Imjin War add up that rice, that miso, whatever other foodstuffs they need, comes out to about three pounds. Civil War rations, three pounds. Alexander's army, three pounds. Three MREs, field stripped and tossed in my assault pack, three pounds. Give or take some ounces here and there. This is a good rule of thumb for military history in general. The soldier's daily caloric intake needs to be around 3,600 calories, 3 pounds for sustained operations. Have soldiers eaten less than that and still fault? Yes, but that is not optimal. That is bad. You want to fix that if that's the case. So, Kenesha Yukonaga's army of 20,000 men, 3 pounds per, needs 60,000 pounds of food for its daily rations daily and that's not counting the horses. The samurai didn't invade Korea with a lot of horses. So let's lowball this number and say that Kanishi's force had a thousand horses. A horse requires roughly twenty to twenty-four pounds of food for a regular day, twenty-four to thirty-two for hard work. Half the ration is grain, the other half can be forage. But if you're sitting inside Pyongyang, there's not going to be a lot of forage available. The horse is inside the city. Where's he going to graze? So let's say 24 pounds per day per horse, a thousand horses eat 24,000 pounds. So Kanishi's daily food requirement in Pyongyang, 84,000 pounds of food per day, 42 tons. And if you're thinking, James, that sounds like an awful lot. Yes, yes, it is. An army is basically a moving city. 20,000 people is Madison Square Garden at full capacity. 20,000 living, breathing human beings and their horses who need 84,000 pounds of food a day. That is the requirement. Let's leave out every other single item of supply. Ammunition, clothing, armor, weapons, blankets, tents, medical supplies. If we leave all of that out, all the rest of it, let's also... Leave out all the rest of Hideyoshi's 150,000-man army in Korea, which also needs to be fed. Let's just focus on this one-word problem. Food going to Kanishi's men at Pyongyang. Transport food X over distance A. We figured out X. The food requirement, 84,000 pounds. Now we have to transport the food over distance A. What is distance A? So it is about 400 miles by road. I use road very loosely because these are tracks. These are not modern asphalt. These are just dirt paths by road from Busan to Pyongyang. How do we transport 84,000 pounds of food daily over 400 miles? Uh, Maybe now you're starting to see the problem. Well, I guess we could have some guys carry that food. So how much food can each man carry? Well, for most of human history, your average soldier has carried from 50 to 60 pounds. Roman legionary, 50 to 60 pounds. British redcoat, 50 to 60 pounds. This number started getting higher with modern conflicts and as human bodies got bigger and taller. So allied troops landed on D-Day with around 80 pounds. Soldiers in the War on Terror sometimes carried over 100 pounds. Which was bad. That's actually not good for war on terror soldiers. The overloading and overburdening of the modern soldier is a very real problem in 21st century warfare. The highest estimate for what an average male human can reliably carry over a long distance in good health is around 80 pounds. But even assuming that these Japanese transporters, these guys carrying the food, even assuming they carry literally nothing else, no weapons, no armor, no equipment, no tents those 80 pounds are not going to make it the 400 miles to Pyongyang. Why not? Because the guy carrying them has to eat too. He has to eat three pounds of food per day if you want him to make that trip. 80 divided by three. So the maximum amount of food he can carry will last 27 days worth of marching. But wait, that's one way. If he's marching for 27 days and arrives at his destination, wherever that is, not only has he eaten all the food he was carrying, but now he's stuck at the other end of the supply chain and you have to feed him too, or he's going to starve to death. Even if he marches 14 days out and 14 days back, he's going to eat everything he's transported on the journey. So that's a limit. You know, he can't get 28, he has to get 28 days one way or 14 days two ways. So how long does it take to march to Pyongyang? Well, armies in the pre-modern era moved slowly. The speed of foot and hoof, the average march speed of an army throughout history, again, Alexander, Napoleon, Civil War, is about 8 to 12 miles per day. This factors in the time it takes to get organized, formed up each morning, break camp, avoid the slinky effect, take periodic breaks on the way, stop, make camp, set defenses, so forth. In the early stages of the Samurai Blitzkrieg, Kanishi Yukonaga's 1st Division made 14 miles per day, and Kato Kiyomasa's troops did 18 miles. And this was considered astounding. This was remarkably fast for the time period, part of why I called it the Samurai Blitzkrieg. This was an unusual march pace, much rather above 12 miles. Even the German Blitzkrieg in 1939-1940 in World War II wasn't making much more than 20 miles. But this pace they were setting, the samurai divisions, would be utterly unsustainable for dudes carrying 80 pounds of food over a long distance up crappy Korean roads. So let's set the rate of march for this board problem at 12 miles per day. And that's probably pushing it. Another military history rule of thumb. There you go. Another military history rule of thumb. The march rate is about 12 miles per day. Anything faster than that is unusual and unsustainable for long periods. You will wear your army out trying and they will arrive at the battlefield exhausted just to get pwned by whoever you are trying to fight. This means that it would take around 33 days to go the 400 miles from Busan to Pyongyang. So what what, we see a problem here, right? That's beyond the 27-day limit that guy can carry his food. The furthest you could go from Busan with 84,000 pounds of food, the furthest distance you could supply from Busan alone will be a 13-day march. Each man carrying 80 pounds would consume three pounds per day, writing this out, writing this out, to carry the two, 13 days and 39 pounds out, 13 days and 39 pounds back. He'll consume 78 pounds on that 13-day march out and back and only have two pounds left to deliver at his destination. So it would take 42,000 men daily to deliver food 13-day march away, and any farther than that is impossible if you want your guy to not starve to death trying to carry the food there. To deliver the food daily over a 13 day route, hmm, 26 days times 42,000 men, literally 1,092,000 men to keep a constant rate of food going up that road for 20,000 men. Not even remotely feasible. But James, how did this, that's, imp- that's crazy. Are, what are you implying? We'll get there, I promise. We'll get there. Okay, James, what about horses? Can the horses carry the food? ah but the horse has to eat a horse can carry around 200 pounds but if he's eating around 24 pounds of food per day 12 if he's got forage available the horse is going to travel at the speed of the men walking with him unless they're riding on him which reduces the weight he can carry so why would you do that and that slows the horse down to their walking pace and don't forget those guys have to eat too Without forage, the horse could travel 8 days before he ate everything he was carrying. With grazing available, he could travel 16 days. Still not going to reach Pyongyang, not even going to get halfway there. (laughs) Got a headache yet? Let's keep going. Well, can the horse pull a wagon? Fantastic idea. Why didn't I think of that? Now, a horse can typically pull about 1.5 times its body weight. Japanese horses were fairly small, but in this period weighed about a thousand pounds. So that means they can pull fifteen hundred pounds. Sounds like a solution, right? Hmm, not quite. The average cart is slow. It gets stuck. It breaks down. And oh, this is monsoon season in Korea. So if that cart gets stuck in the mud, it is not leaving the mud. <laughs> On bad Korean roads, a horse's pulling ability is lowered to its body weight. So a thousand pounds. 200 pounds of that will be the cart itself, so you can pull 800 pounds of food. 800 divided by the 24 pounds of food the horse eats daily equals 33 days worth of food for that horse. Well guys, looks like the horse is eating the last of the food he was pulling just as he's walking through the gate at Pyongyang. If we assume that he made that trip in 33 days, which is a heck of an assumption given how slow the carts are and how bad the roads are, Even if everything goes perfectly, the food is still consumed by the time the horse gets there. And now the horse can't get back because he needs to eat too. So nope, still not feasible. Animal-drawn wagons could transport a lot of stuff over a fairly short distance. They were always important, but not over a long one. So very long story short, guys, all those numbers add up to a conclusion. You cannot transport 84,000 pounds of food daily by land over the 400 miles from Busan to Pyongyang. It is not possible. You could assemble every man, woman, and child, every horse and cart in Japan, load them up with food and tell them to march it to Pyongyang, and none of that food would make it. They would either have to eat it all or starve to death on the way. Logistics in the pre-modern period, in the age of when everything traveled at the speed of foot and hoof, had diminishing returns the farther you got from the point of supply. And there was a certain limit beyond which that supply could not go. So, guys, there is no solution to that word problem. There is no solution to the logistic problem I gave you. And this leads me to a bigger point. A military history rule of thumb that I've been driving at for the last 10 minutes In the pre-modern age, and for a lot of the modern age, it was impossible to supply a large army over a long distance by land alone. It could not be done. The food requirements of a large army were far beyond the transport capacity of human and equine muscle power, and it could only carry its own food over a certain distance. At most, an army could carry its own rations for about 14 days before it ate everything it was carrying, because an army has to carry all its equipment in addition to its food. If a man has 50 pounds of equipment, think about these Ashigaru. They're carrying their armor, they're carrying their weapons, their helmets, they're carrying all their their tents and their knapsacks and all their other stuff. They can only they have 50 pounds of equipment. They can only carry 30 pounds of food, 10 three-day rations. If you add in the pack horses and carts to get them a little bit farther, but remember all those pack horses have their own requirements, the army can march at most 14 days only on what it can carry. And past that point, it can no longer be feasibly supplied by land, as we have just seen. It would require literally a million men to supply only 20,000 men over a 14-day stretch. Horses and carts would get you some of the way farther, but not that much farther. So no... Supplying Kanishi's men in Pyongyang could not be done over land. It was impossible. This is what I call the iron hand of logistics. Ready? A pre-modern army could not be feasibly supplied farther than 10 days march or 120 miles, and it could not carry its own food farther than 14 days march or around 170 miles. Anything past that point, your army is starving the iron hand of logistics. You can only break this law by depriving your men of calories. No soldiers in history, known or unknown, no elite Spartan or samurai or Viking or Navy SEAL can ever macho or cool guy their way out of a caloric deficit. They can go for short distances and short times without much food, but over a long period, their body is going to start to digest itself and they can no longer fight effectively any pre-modern army's single biggest logistic requirement by a long shot was food. Thousands of pounds of food per day, and this was a non-negotiable requirement. Fail to meet it, and no matter how brave and manly and well-trained and well-disciplined your soldiers are, no matter how legendary your samurai army is, the iron hand of logistics will choke them. So James, given what you just told me, how did any army ever feed itself? Well, You cannot break the Iron Hand of Logistics, but there were ways around it. There were bypasses. The main workaround for the Iron Hand of Logistics has always been local supply. Get your food and supplies from the surrounding area. This is how most armies supplied themselves throughout most of human history. They did not have long supply lines. They were eating their stuff from their local area. One way this could be done was through supply depots. You stock up on food at places your army will be stationed or along its line of march. Generals like Alexander the Great or Caesar or Napoleon would spend a huge portion of their time, lots of their planning, centered around preparing food stocks for their armies to eat on the route of march. Alexander, during his campaigns against Persia, would send agents ahead of the army along his planned line of march to make food arrangements, so his soldiers would have rations waiting for them every few days. This is what a smart commander did. And when you're invading another country, well, we've established that any rations your soldiers carry only last about 14 days. After that, your soldiers are eating whatever they can gather from the territory. This food could be purchased, but more often than not, soldiers just took it. People in the American South still get riled up at how much food Sherman stole in his march through Georgia, but that had been the way armies fed themselves for most of history. The army took what it needed from the local population. This was how armies fed themselves up until, and sometimes well into, the 20th century. They're they're still doing this sometimes in the world wars. And this also meant that you had to time your invasions very carefully because of the harvest. For most of human history, people have lived on subsistence agriculture. They barely had enough to feed themselves. Now, when a hungry army arrives, it's going to be be a very, very bad day for any civilians in their path because the army is going to steal all their food. But there has to be enough food for the army to steal. So your invasion needs to hit at the right time. And another hidden rule of thumb of military history, armies planned their invasions around the harvest when Robert E. Lee invaded Pennsylvania in the Gettysburg Campaign in 1863 during the Civil War. One of his main motivations was to feed his starving army. It's one of the reasons he launched the invasion. So he invaded in late June, right in time for southern Pennsylvania's winter wheat harvest. So back to the Imjin War. When the Japanese invaded Korea in 1592, they did capture a lot of stockpiled grain and rice when they seized major cities. In fact, Kanishi Yukinaga's men captured a large grain stockpile when they took Pyongyang in July 1592. That was the only reason they were able to feed themselves up there for any length of time. But Kanishi's men were up there for eight months. By the end of those eight months, the captured grain supplies were gone, and his first division was starving. So obviously the next solution was, okay, let's confiscate a bunch of food from the Korean countryside. That's what we do, right? Well, think back. What did the Japanese not do early on in the Imjin War? That's right, conquer the countryside. They controlled a thin strip of road going from Busan to Seoul to Pyongyang and not much else. They did not control the territory around that road. They had also, critically, bypassed Chola Province, Korea's breadbasket, its most fertile food-producing region then and now. I kept mentioning that the Japanese had not conquered Chola Province in 1592 because that was where all the food was. That was important. (laughs) And to make matters worse, the Japanese invasion hit Korea right during the optimum sowing season of May to June. This meant that when Koreans would normally be planting their rice and wheat crops for the harvest in October, they were fleeing for their lives into the hills or being rounded up by slave traders or just being massacred. This meant that there was no October crop in the areas the Japanese Blitzkrieg had passed, the areas that they were now limited to, and the areas where they were starving. And to make matters even worse, by July and August, the hills were full of angry Korean guerrillas, and these guys prevented any large-scale food-gathering operations. It became downright dangerous for any small party of Japanese soldiers to be foraging because they'd be snapped up by the guerrillas. So no, the Japanese had pretty much screwed themselves as far as local food sources went. And if they couldn't ship food from Busan out to all their other units by land— let alone to Kanishi's isolated garrison far away at Pyongyang, well, that left the sea. Throughout human history, waterborne transport has been by far the cheapest, quickest, most efficient method. Why do you think cities always grew up near rivers? Not just because they needed a water source, though they did, but because river barges could bring in the vast amounts of food that a city required. A city is not self-sustaining it needs food from the countryside. Even one decent riverboat could carry tons of food, and even a below-average sailing ship of the 16th century could easily carry 100 tons. If only one ship per day made it up the Korean coast and up the Taedong River to Pyongyang, that one ship could carry enough food to feed Kanishi's army and have plenty of room left for their other supplies. Sea transport carried more, carried it farther, carried it quicker, with less need for manpower than anything by land. One ship can do in a few days, over, entirely over water, what a million men could not do in a month. If only one ship was making it up to Pyongyang, Kanishi's men are eating. Supply by sea or by river was by far the best way to bypass the iron hand of logistics. And again, generals have always done this. Alexander the Great was stapled to his supply fleet for most of his campaigns. The Romans placed their major garrison towns on rivers like the Rhine or the Danube so they could send food by ship. Ulysses S. Grant focused his civil war campaigns on capturing the major rivers, opening up supply routes for the Union army. And my favorite example. The British kept an army of over 100,000 men and their camp followers supplied and fed in the 13 colonies during the American Revolution over the Atlantic, thousands of miles, entirely by sea. This was incredibly difficult and expensive, but they could do it by sea. So there are three ways to supply a pre-modern army. Three, overland, extremely difficult, can only be done for very short distances. The samurai blitzkrieg accomplished a lot by invading most of Korea so quickly, but in doing so, they outstripped the limits at which they could be supplied from their main seaport. When I talk in this podcast about an army overextending itself, that's the kind of thing I mean. They move past where they can be supplied. The second way to supply yourself was through local supply. Locally, usually the best and go-to method, but not an option for the Japanese in 1592. They only controlled the roads and not the countryside. The Koreans hated their guts and their invasion screwed up the harvest. The third option was by sea. Sea transport was the only feasible way to supply a large army over a long distance. So if the Japanese had control of the sea, if they could send supply ships up the coast and up the rivers, all their logistical problems would be solved. They could bypass the entire word problem. This was their only real way to bypass the iron hand of logistics, supply their forces by sea the farther they moved up the Korean peninsula. And guys, this was Hideyoshi's entire plan for the invasion. Toyotomi Hideyoshi may have been a megalomaniac with delusions of grandeur, but he hadn't gotten to where he was by being a bad general or by ignoring the iron hand of logistics. He was fully cognizant of the needs of an army. He had led and coordinated over a dozen victorious campaigns that often involved moving hundreds of thousands of men over complex terrain. It was always Hideyoshi's plan to supply his troops by sea on their way to conquer China. That's why he assembled such an enormous fleet, not to fight the Korean Navy, but to supply his troops. Like any competent general, like Alexander or Caesar or Napoleon or Grant or Eisenhower, he made careful logistic preparations to ensure the success of his campaign. And in a perfect world, nothing would have gone wrong. But like so many people, Hideyoshi underestimated his opponent. Because as we know, something went wrong. And that something was Yi Sun-shin and the Korean Navy by blocking the sea lands, by blocking the coastal waters around Korea. Yi Sun-shin closed off Hideyoshi's plan to bypass the iron hand of logistics. The Japanese couldn't feed their men over land, literally impossible. They couldn't forge from the countryside, they screwed themselves out of that. Their only feasible solution was to supply their army by sea, and by closing this option off, Yi Sun-shin put the Japanese army in a position where it was spread out over hostile territory, unable to feed or reinforce itself, starving to death. And this was why the Japanese lost the Imjin War. Because Hideyoshi's logistic preparations, complex and overwhelming as they were, ran into the brick wall that was a random Korean admiral in his battle fleet. It was literally impossible to feed his army over land, impossible to feed it locally, and Yi Sun-shin blocked his supply routes by sea. And Yi Sun-shin understood what he was doing. It was his entire strategy. Korean sources spell this out explicitly. Yi Sun-shin was like, I have to block Hideyoshi's supply lines and his army will wither on the vine and die. And Hideyoshi understood it, which was why he sent his battle fleet to try and smash Yi Sun-shin in the ba- Battle of Han the last battle in the first episode of the Imjin War series, where the Koreans annihilated the Japanese battle fleet in one of the great decisive naval battles of history. It wasn't decisive because it gave the Koreans a good kill-death ratio, or because the Japanese depended on their battle fleet to win the war. No, it was decisive because it closed off for good, the only means by which Hideyoshi could supply his invasion. And that will wrap up this case study on logistics. That's why the Japanese lost the IMjin War logistically and I spelled it out for you I even gave you the math for it. But I'm going to finish off this short round, not so short round now, I can see I've already hit over the time, but this is important, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to finish off this short round by driving home why this matters. Everything I just said today can be applied to every war in history. Not always by the same rules. No, the rule the, the numbers change, the rules don't change the numbers change. The only significant change in the history of military logistics was a little something called the Industrial Revolution. Steam power, railroads, steamboats, eventually automobiles and aircraft. When these new inventions arrived, they marked the transition from muscle power transport to machine power transport, which allowed for the transport of much, much larger quantities of supplies. The Industrial Revolution changed the iron hand of logistics. But that iron hand will still strangle you. Think of all the other word problems I could do. A railroad has X capacity. You have Y number of train cars. A railroad moves at Z speed. Make a word problem. How big of an army can you support over a single track railroad? It puts a hard limit on your supply chain. Just ask the generals in World War I trucks trucks can carry x amount of supplies but they burn z amount of fuel the farther they travel they're consuming their own fuel resources like the horses the farther they go just ask rommel why his desert campaign failed in world war ii he overextended himself he went past the point where his trucks could supply him and as the capacities of military logistics changed armies changed they required much more material bigger weapons bigger ammunition millions of artillery shells and tanks and trucks and gallons of fuel by the 20th century food is no longer the main logistic requirement of armies it is ammunition and fuel but the iron hand is always there waiting to smite those who overlook or ignore these laws just ask hitler how the invasion of russia went Everything I've said today is relevant for every single campaign in military history. Your soldiers have food requirements. They have certain distances they can march. They have certain limits beyond which they cannot be supplied. There are logistic requirements that you have to meet There are logistic constraints on what you can do. Variables like distance, time, weather, terrain, expenditure, carrying capacity, are all things that every single commander has to keep in mind, from the pharaohs of ancient Egypt to the four-star general in the Pentagon today. Far more of a general's time is taken up with matters of supply and logistics than in planning for battle. Peel back any event in military history and you'll find logistics sitting there. God King Xerxes on his way into Greece, wondering if he can win the war quickly before autumn comes and the stormy seas scatter his supply fleet. Alexander the Great planning his march into the Persian Empire along the routes that he knows his scouts tell him have the best water supplies and recent grain harvests. Crusader King setting up contacts with Italian merchants to receive grain supplies by sea on their way to Jerusalem. Bonnie Prince Charlie, forced to fight at Culloden to defend his final stockpile of rations. Napoleon, assembling every cart and horse and transport wagon he could get his hands on and finding out it still wasn't enough to supply his army in the invasion of Russia. George Patton, robbing gasoline from 90% of his tanks to keep the other 10% running in France because the Allied allies were running into the iron hand of logistics as the limited capacity of the Normandy beaches became apparent. The United States and Afghanistan maintaining its turbulent alliance with Pakistan, even after they were hiding Bin Laden, because all the land routes to Kabul run through Pakistan. And if you're watching the news lately, Russia unable to conquer Ukraine as quickly as they wanted to, although I'm recording this as it's going on. I don't know how it's going to turn out. If you listen to this in the future, I don't know. I can't see the future. But Russia's running into problems in its invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, because the poor state of Russian logistics was unable to supply their troops up to their objectives. I don't know whether these guys heard the saying, but they and Toyotomi Hideyoshi and Yi Sun-shin would have understood it. Amateurs study tactics. Professionals study logistics. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't tell your enemies, check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I am always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so you've got advice. I'd love to hear it. And guys, we're closing the book on the MGen War. War War's done. We're back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. I got some standalones for you, and the end of the season will come in May. Hope to see you again, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers.